Hello and welcome to Rise of RevOps. This episode features an interview with Sean Hiss, Vice President of Go-To-Market Operations at Weka, a venture-backed data platform for AI. Sean is an expert in go-to-market strategy and revenue marketing. Having previously held multiple senior leadership roles at technology and data powerhouses like Cisco Systems, Equinix, DataStax, and Hitachi Ventara. On this episode, Sean talks about prioritizing efficiently during growth, what he thinks are important qualities in go-to-market teams, and how he balances data-driven decisions with gut instincts. But first, a word from our sponsor. Rise of RevOps is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified's Pipeline Cloud is the future of pipeline generation for revenue teams that use Salesforce. Learn more about the Pipeline Cloud on qualified.com. And now please enjoy this interview with Sean Hiss, Vice President of Go-To-Market Operations at Weka, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Rise of RevOps. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I am joined by a very special guest. Sean, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Ian. Thanks so much for joining the show today. Super excited to chat with you about RevOps. Maybe uh, perhaps a term that you think should be slightly different. Get into all the stuff that you're doing at Weka. So let's get into it. What does your company do and who do you sell to? Yeah, so at Weka, we're the biggest, smallest company most people have not heard of yet, but a very exciting place to be. And we are the data platform for AI. And what we're selling is just that data platform for really large enterprises or those companies that are on the cutting edge that are going to be the future, you know, Fortune 50 companies moving forward in this next tranche. We also set up quite a few university medical research centers, government science labs, anyone that's moving and are consuming enormous amounts of data. Wonderful. And tell me about your your RevOps team, uh, or perhaps uh, maybe you don't call them that. We don't. So I actually have very purposely named my team go-to-market operations. And I think we, you know, we'll probably get into that a little bit more. But like the thing that that makes us like every other operations team I've been on is we're small. In operations, we tend to run really lean, probably too lean in most cases. And we love to find resources for everybody else and don't advocate enough for our own resources. But I run a, a global small team, got six people working for me right now. And The way that I've structured my team is about roughly half of of the team is focused on the business side of it. So policy process governance of the end-to-end selling motion. And the other part is focused on the technology and all the kind of backbone that enables our sellers to be successful. But it's not just sellers, it's the marketing team and the customer success as well. But we consider those selling teams. Yeah, so let's just get into it now. Why why, uh, why did you decide to change the name to go to bar? I love that, by the way. So, And this obviously, part of the reason why we're making the show is this is all brand new. It's all, all everyone's kind of, kind of trying to figure it out. Yeah, and so first of all, I don't want to put anybody out, say one's better than the other, but we purposely, I really wanted not only my team, but the company to understand what I considered the remit of our team. And what I mean by that is, In my experience, oftentimes when we say revenue ops, what we're talking about is sales ops or an established sales ops team that has kind of picked up the couple of marketing ops people under their wing, but it's more focused on sales operations, which is an important part of the function, an important discipline. But I purposely wanted us to think about the end-to-end experience for our internal stakeholders and what is that customer outcome that we're after. So purposely, it's the marketing, you know, top of funnel marketing 
through the selling motion, all the way through the advocacy on the customer success side, and then bring that full loop again. I also wanted us to be thoughtful of our data sets and really understand that there's more to how we're going to measure the business than just our pipeline and Salesforce and really think about the business holistically and plan holistically. So purposeful and calling it go to market have tried to bring people from multiple disciplines. And I've personally done both sales operations and marketing operations roles in my past, as well as been a seller and been a pure play marketing person, product marketing, field marketing, demand gen. Um, and so I, I wanted to have that environment and continuously remind people of a little bit irregardless of your actual title, we're all here to support that end-to-end process. I love that, and th- and that's really what uh, I think. That's what why revenue operations is uh, is um, the new normal is the new name because of that exact same reason that it doesn't matter if it's sales, marketing, customer success. It's all these different functions driving revenue, and ops has to see across all of those. Agreed. That's right. And and again, I you know revenue ops is a great term. In my company culture, I just really wanted to force the issue of one selling team. And, and not splitting it out that way in terms of, again, in my experience, it's been a heavy on sales ops, super important, but kind of wanted it to be an equal pie, if you will. Yeah, so obviously your team, a, a little similar in some ways, like you said, lean team, global team. Obviously, you have a lot of background, as you mentioned, on on all the different sides of, of the aisles, but a little different kind of in, in naming and positioning within the company. How does your team compare to other RevOps teams that have other companies when you talk to your colleagues? I think our structure is similar. The challenge, my unique challenge is, and I keep telling my team, we, we have the best problems you can have in the world, meaning our company is growing so fast. The results, the sales results are incredible you know, kind of future outlook is incredible. And so where where we've been challenged is the operations part of it, the, the actual, like, how do we support and bring forward and help the sales teams execute on that? We've not kept pace and size with the selling teams. And so we're just completely outnumbered right now. And how that manifests is, you know, you have your work of today, and if you are executing or surviving today, depending on your day. But we also have to build for the future, right? I have to be thinking about, okay, if our company is at size X right now, let's hypothetically call it, and these are hypothetical numbers right now, but let's call it $50 million of ARR. I need to figure out what does the team need to do to support that $50 million now, but also how do we build for 100 right? And how do we peel off time to be strategic thinkers, to get us ahead of that, to make the purposeful, sometimes not so fun, uncomfortable, conscientious decision of like, hey, we're just not going to get to that other stuff. It's important. But if we keep living in today's importance, we're not going to be able to build out for tomorrow. And so trying to find that balance has been kind of our struggle in our team size right now. But I think from a structure standpoint, we're pretty standard, marketing ops, sales ops, discipline, customer success. And again, I've got some technologists, some some habitually call it MarTech, but it's broader than MarTech, right? But the the kind of MarTech technologists that are really helping us to thread everything end to end. What were your first 90 days like coming into this role? It's been a really interesting company. I think like most people, right? I come in with a listen and learn mentality, obviously did my research, did had the opportunity to interview quite a bit before I came in, which for me, maybe a, maybe a ad hoc career tip here, 
you know, I was interviewing the company and the people as much as they were to me. And so I had a pretty good understanding what I was coming into. The unique thing about my company is it's completely engineering-led, meaning our three founders of our company are engineers by nature. They spent the first three plus years of the company building our product portfolio, and then we started selling it. And so what's been interesting is a lot of our then go-to-market processes, technology, governance, all of that was best decision, but from non-practitioners in some regards, right? Again, a lot of engineering perspective, a lot of textbook perspective, which is not bad. It's actually a good place to start. But then when you start putting things in practice, and then when you put the growing on top, we're running into, oh, wow, is this scaling how we wanted it to? Have we painted ourselves in a corner, et cetera, et cetera? So for me, it was listen and learn, very hands-on against, you know, starting in a smaller company. And just like everything, you know, I'll own it. We had very little documentation, a lot of tribal knowledge. So a lot of just asking a ton of questions, not being shy about questions, building my relationships across all of the functions, um, you know, and again, not just in the go-to-market, right? But finance, who's my finance partner? How are we doing that part of it? You know, what's our book to bill? And, and just building all of those out, doing a lot of documentation and a lot of hands-on. That's how I learned personally. Um, it's just like, okay, like, can you show me what you just did? Yes, I get it. I'm probably not going to be the one doing that day-to-day, but I really want to understand how we're doing it because I want to understand, is that good for now and is that good for the future? So just a lot of that. And then thinking about doing a lot less talking, especially for the 30 days and a lot more listening, you know, and form, form some opinions pretty quickly but wanted to be thoughtful about my opinions before I started kind of being like, okay, here's where I want to shift the team or here's where I want us to be focused moving forward. All right, let's get to our first segment, Rev Obstacles. Obstacle, obstacle. An obstacle to what? There's your obstacle! Where we talk about the tough parts of... I love it. <laughs> I know, right? The tough parts about Rev Ops. So what's the hardest uh, RevOps or go-to-market GTM problem that you faced in the last six months and how did you solve it? Yeah, and so again, I feel like I'm embarrassment of riches here. Like our biggest problem is keeping up with our growth, which is, again, I tell my team all the time, like it's okay to have a bad moment, a bad day, but we have the best best kinds of problems over here, right? Which is everything that's growth related. The the other side of that coin is not fun. And so keeping up with our growth, like I said, and and really getting to prioritize what we're going to execute on now. How do we carve out strategy time? How do we get ahead of the growth? And I think fundamentally, most of us who go into operations, we do it because we're helpers, we're doers, we're, you know, I'm personally, and I think my whole team is this way, and I, I, I would imagine that most of our industry is like this, very team, you know, we before me kind of a, a scenario. And so just keeping up with the state of the growth, with the resources we have, and getting a seat at the table to say, okay, this is amazing, but if we're going to be growing our selling teams by exponential amount, This is what's going to be required from an infrastructure standpoint, from a people standpoint, to be able to best support those selling teams. If you throw a bunch of selling teams on top and we can't enable them properly, we can't support them, those are our most expensive resources in the company, and we want them to be as successful as possible. So we also need to make the investment on the ops side, on the foundation side, to make sure that we're setting everybody up for the most amount of success and getting the most outcome that we can from the business side. 
Yeah, definitely a good problem to have, uh, <laughs> for sure. Great problem to have. Again, like I feel super fortunate, and it's challenging and really fun, and it can be frustrating and all those things, but it's uh, it's pretty awesome. You mentioned some of those mistakes, and obviously we all make those. I'm curious, any uh, any setbacks that you've had as you're trying to to grow and kind of keep your hands on the rocket ship? <laughs> Sure, of course, like a ton, actually. As I think about that, right, I try to bring a very objective, data-driven perspective to the company. Again, the, the stage of our company and the growth we've been going through, what's been an interesting challenge is, Ian, when we start, we're like, okay, looking at historic trends, how, what do we project next year to look like? And I was like, guys, six months ago when I started to now, we're an entirely different company. So while we can model off of what happened a year, a year and a half ago, it kind of doesn't matter anymore, right? And so we really have to get comfortable with small data sets or small sample sizes anyways, smaller data sets, and get this comfort level with how do you look at the, you know, make the data-driven decision, but bring your experience and your gut and all those things and, and merge those two together. And, you know, we had, again, the there's a ton of great things that come with working with a bunch of engineers. The challenge is we, gosh, do we like to really analyze data at my company? And again, I'm not against that, right? But at a certain point, it's the data is going to tell us so much. And so let's take that for what it's worth, move on, you know, make our decisions, and go forward and just not get stuck in this trying to find the perfect data set doesn't exist. I'm not, I'm not convinced. I've had the chance to work out like huge enterprise, like Fortune 50 companies, startups, doesn't perfect data set doesn't exist anywhere. There's degrees of good and not so good, but it's never perfect. And we just have to get comfortable with the imperfection, imperfectness. Help me out with the word there, Ian. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, we gotta, we gotta, uh, uh, we gotta be, um, uh, smart people don't at me after this of whatever word I'm making up. Well, I think that uh, one of the things you're talking about is kind of like great is the enemy of good, right? And I think that's so much in startup where we're like, well, let's create the perfect model based off of how things have been going the last six months. And you're like, yeah, but that's not predictive, right? Like, it's not going to predict the future. We, Like you said, we changed entirely as a company in the past six months. So if we look at everything historically, is that really going to tell us like that much? And I think that, and smaller sample sizes, right? It's like, you know, if you have 20 sales reps doing something versus 50 sales reps doing something, you're like, it's, it's a, you've doubled the uh, two and a half times the, the amount of inputs that you're getting in. Yeah, and in my universe, it's actually 3X, right? So in my last six months, we've gone from five sellers to 20. Five selling teams to 20 globally, and we're going to be doubling that again in the next year. So it's the... That behavior, you can see a trend. It can be interesting. Data can be really interesting, but we can't get paralyzed by that. And you're spot on with the, you know, we call it the perfect is the enemy of the good. And so that the other thing that I push my team really hard on and, and push my executive team as well is we've got to get comfortable with 80% good, 80 plus percent good, and have a bias for urgency and action versus, you know, solving for every corner case and every perfect scenario. We're never going to get there and we're never going to catch up with, let alone get ahead of our growth stage here. So in those competing priorities, obviously you have, you have sales, you have marketing, you have customer success. How do you balance those three when, when they're all asking for Sean's team's help? Yeah. And so I'm a little bit sneaky with this, Ian, but I stand by it, right? So I focus on our customer outcomes and experience first. 
I always try to take that outside in lens instead of the inside out. A, I believe it's the right thing to do. B, it's hard to argue with what I want when I frame it that way, right? So just from a successful standpoint of, hey, if we're thinking about this customer experience, about what this looks like for them to go end to end with us, to become a satisfied, happy customer who's advocating our product, our company on behalf of, what does that look like and how do we need to think about that? And so when I when I position it that way, Right. I actually start with strategic planning with each of the functional leads. So my peer set, right? The person that runs sales, person that runs marketing, person that runs customer success, and look at things both from a functional level of how do we align to our kind of corporate North Stars, and then bring them together on a somewhat regular basis, actually, to kind of reestablish. Because to me, this is part of this is this ongoing planning. To, planning shouldn't be a once a year checkbox, like big bang kind of project, but for me, rather your plans are living document. And so we're revisiting this on a roughly monthly basis, maybe not that quite much, but maybe eight times a year. And when you do that, it's not this enormous investment in time, right? So we're then spending an hour like, hey, how are we doing? What's working well? Where are we going? Does the rest of the year plan look good? How do we kind of take what we carved out for agility, what makes the most sense to do that, et cetera, et cetera. So my long-winded answer, Ian, is frame things for the customer first and continuous open dialogue and communication with the cross-functional leaders, plus taking the initiative to bring the teams together to have a holistic conversation. All right, let's get to our next segment, the tool shed. Hey, hey Brandon, Michael, want to do me and mom a favor, get off that shed? This is my favorite place. <laughs> the tool shed. Get off the shed! We're talking tools, spreadsheets, metrics, just like everybody's favorite tool, which is qualified. No B2B tool shed is complete without qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more about them. Sean, let's get into your tool shed. What do you got? What software dashboard systems are you spending the most time in? Yeah. So we, the other thing that's really interesting about our company is we have um, embarrassment of riches on a, from a technology stack. We have just a ton of best of breed stuff, frankly, probably more than we can consume at this stage of like kind of a, at our size, but a lot of amazing stuff. Depending on the hat I'm wearing, I'll go deeper in one versus the other. But, you know, I was thinking about this and here's where I spend most of my time, right? So we're Salesforce shop. So Obviously, a lot of time in Salesforce, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of dashboards and reporting as we go through. I actually start my morning in Salesforce. So I don't know if that, on the degree of nerdiness that makes me or not for this audience, probably probably not so nerdy. I'm also, we've, we've recently implemented Clary. And so I really love Clary as well for my sellers because I think it's it's got a great mobile experience. It puts the keeping updated forecasting and opportunity management kind of right at their fingertips. It's all things or mostly things you can do in Salesforce, but it's just making it that much easier for the team as we go through. Also, we're a HubSpot shop from a marketing automation standpoint. So a lot of time in HubSpot and Gainsight is what we're using, implementing for our customer success team and kind of thinking about that, our customer cockpit or customer dashboard of, of what that looks like. In addition, a couple of the other side tools we've been using a bit have put in recently, and you just did a shout out. I'll also give a shout out for Qualified. We're a recent Qualified customer. I think I'm about four or five months in now. 
really amazing how they're tying together a data set with the visitors and IP matching. And for me, when I thought about lead flow and how do we best enable our sales team, right, and getting our customers on this on the digital buyer's journey, it's been an incredible tool for us. So I've been really happy with that. And the other one I'm looking at is Atrium. Um, and again, that's a kind of a BI tool that lets me understand where my sales teams are spending their time, what's the kind of effort versus reward in terms of pipeline build, efficacy, activity, those kinds of things. So lots of tools on top of those, but that's probably my main kind of table of stuff I'm interacting with on a daily basis. I love it. That is what a, what a breakdown. And there's more, and there's many, many more, I think, like a lot of people, yeah. Of course. And so within all of that, what what metrics matter to you? I love this question because it's such a brutal question. Um, and as I've, I've thought about this a lot during my career and my perspectives evolved a lot in this, about this in my career. And I think especially as my scale and scope of my job roles have changed, and now I, you know, I have the good fortune of sitting between the executive team and I think the doers. And I mean that with respect, right? But there's the, how do you think about your corporate level metrics and what are the leading and and lagging indicators that let you know on an executive level, are we doing well? Are we on target, right? We're not gonna look at a hundred plus things Although again, some of my executives would love to spend an afternoon looking at a hundred things, but I steer them away from that because it's, if you're curious, that's one thing, but it's not how we're going to manage the company from an executive standpoint on a functional level. So whether you're running digital, you're doing demand gen, you're a customer success, what have you, we may end up with, and we likely do actually should do the count now. 50 plus metrics that we're looking at, like across the go-to-market motion on a functional level that let us know, was that ad buy successful? Did this event give us the results we wanted? Is our sales motion, you know, creating the, the velocity we need in the funnel, et cetera, et cetera. But I've been, I've spent a lot of probably the last five plus years of my career really focused on getting executives focused on a really top level dashboard. And the, to me, the common things are revenue slash bookings. I think we're here to make money, right? New logo acquisition, which is the proxy for how is the company growing and what does the future look like? Our pipeline coverage, which is a leading indicator for sales rep performance and are we going to hit our numbers? On the marketing side, some combination of share of voice and, and customer and prospect engagement. And then lastly, some sort of a customer advocacy metric, right? Whether it's an MPS score or, you know, some other CSAT score or something like that. Those are the ones that I continuously try to bring my executive teams back up to and focused on. And that's where I like to start our conversations when we're doing QBRs or what have you of how do we feel about these things? And then we can double click down from there. And so, Sean, do you have an example of something that you noticed in your pipeline wasn't really working and that you kind of was were able to to diagnose and fix? Yeah, I a couple of things actually and they're interrelated and again I go back to really fortunate we have a lot of good problems to tackle here. One of the first things I noticed is um and I don't think we're unique in this in in the kind of size of company we are and, and where we're at in our maturity level, but we were living our pipeline was living quarter to quarter meaning the entire pipeline was set up to be in this quarter and then whatever didn't close, right? Close one, ideally, but even close loss, whatever didn't close, 
that just rolled over to next quarter's pipeline. And so building out the maturity of, okay, we're an enterprise sale. It's it's not a one-quarter sale. It's very technical, high-end technology, very complicated, sophisticated stuff that we enable. It's a six-plus-month sales process from a, from a qualified lead for us. And so teaching the team of the importance of trying to land realistically where you think this opportunity sits. And so part of that process, Ian, was first of all, and by the way, I'm married to a sales executive, and so I, so I live this right. I'm not speaking ill of any salespeople, but creating an environment where people felt like, you know, they weren't going to get in trouble for missing a number. Because I think in that environment, what happens then is people, I don't want to say sandbag, but they get very conservative. I don't want to get beat, right, for missing a number or be like, where's this amount, da 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 So I'm going to put in the lowest I can possibly get away with, and hopefully nobody's going to call me out on it. And so trying to create a, more of an open environment where we discuss things, try to pull out what we think is more of a real number, but not crush people as they're as we're maturing and maturing and learning the business and hey how good at that were we right how good are we at forecasting and how do we continue to develop that muscle so so part of it was just kind of like where do we land and what's the size of it and getting comfortable with being realistic but you know to the right of center on aggressive not insane right but not to the left of center of like uber conservative because you know, I'm safe if I just put in a low number. And so that that's the big push we've been doing is just, again, as we matured, as we bring in new sellers to say, this is our way. This is why we're asking you to do it. And that's the other part is explaining to them how this data is used with the executive team, with our board of directors, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a setup for a gotcha. Ha ha, Ian, you said you were going to do 100 and you did 80. You know, boom, you're in the penalty box. That's not what we're after. And so that that's I think the the biggest kind of pipeline issue I've I've come into is just being more thoughtful about landing the the amount and and when. I love that. Great story. Let's talk spreadsheets. Love it. Let's talk spreadsheets. I never never in a million years thought I would be spend so much time in spreadsheets. <laughs> there you go. What are your top three? For the job I have and what I'm looking at, it's a combination or the three I'm probably going to the most are pipeline. My rep ramp, and I mean that just in terms of, do I feel like we've done what we need to do to enable them to help them build a territory to get them set up for success? And some combination of mix and lead flow, right? So where are we at in terms of our velocity and where are things coming from? And is that the right balance that we're expecting between marketing contribution, sales contribution, and our partner channel contribution? Any spreadsheet tips or tricks? For the audience, my biggest spreadsheet tip is dumb as it sounds, or as basic as it sounds, maybe it's a better way to say it. Double check your work. I live in Excel all day long, like I'm sure a lot of people do. And the amount of times that, you know, we, we get very proficient in it, but the amount of times I've caught where I've like just done a sloppy copy or a formula error. And in your head, you know it's right, but you've just like a fat fingered something or something, right? Okay, we all make mistakes, but the challenge is this. I know because I'm living in the data, I know what I should be expecting or roughly expecting. And, you know, can I eyeball it? Oh, wow, does that look right? That doesn't look right. Let me go double check it. 
The reason why I stress this is, in my experience, if you show up with bad data, the entire conversation then is about the data integrity and not about the business topic at hand. And so it's just a headache that you can avoid by literally taking the two minutes to sanity check, is this all right before I start sharing it? And again, I know that sounds really basic, but I've, I've learned that lesson the hard way, unfortunately, more times than I should have in my career. And I just double check everything now. And sometimes even if I'm super tired, hey, somebody on my team, will you sanity check this for me real quick? And, and don't spend more than two minutes on it. But does this look right to you? That's my tip. Not sexy, but keep yourself out of the doghouse. What is one tool that, that might be new to you that you can't live without? I'm old school. So I am very big on, so I'm all for technology, but I'll be honest with you. I start with policy process and governance every time before I jump to a tool. And for me, the tool then should be either helping us be more productive, more efficient, or get a better outcome as we go through that. So again, I'm very pro-technology. And I mentioned a couple, right, that that we've been putting in lately that I that I think are really amazing. Qualified's one. I'm a big Gainsight fan, big Clary fan. So, you know, these things are great. I'm not sure they're so brand new in the market. I'm not at the point now where I'm throwing stuff in, though, just to throw it in. But I'm kind of more of a measured person when I approach technology. Anything cool that uh, that your team has done with data recently or something that surprised you? As I think about that question, I'm like, you know, data leaks and, you know, what like what is cool to do with data? The thing that I'm, I might reframe your question and say the thing that I'm kind of most proud of that we've been doing with data and the thing that I've been really focused on the team with is demystifying across our entire company how we're using the data. So what is the data for? Right. And I, I find that once I help the selling teams understand the how, the where, the when data is being used, there's less resistance kind of around that conversation and then more substantive conversations than this kind of protecting or like, you know, being afraid of data or hiding around data. So again, I try to set up an environment where it's okay to be wrong, an environment where we take some calculated risks, an environment where we're learning and growing as we go. And again, I like for people to understand the how and why we're doing what we're doing. So, you know, they can get on board with it. It doesn't just feel like a big corporate data checkbox exercise, like, let me get done with this thing so I can move on. All right, let's go to our final segment, quick hits. your quick questions and quick answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one. The suspense is killing me. (laughs) If you could take one animal and make them really big or make them really small, what would it be? I want to make a giraffe normal size. I don't know why. (laughs) I love that. I don't know, but it's like, I, I saw this meme on, I think, Reddit or something, right? And it was like, okay, unicorns don't exist, but giraffes do. Unicorn is more likely to be in the normal realm of whatever versus this thing with a crazy neck and what have you. I want to see like a household dog sized giraffe. I don't know why, but that's what I want. Do you have a favorite book or TV show or podcast that you've been checking out? I do. I go back to, um, I really love The Martian, Andy Weir. I love this notion. You know, I think he, for me, really nails, you know, my self proclaimed nerdiness, nails the science fiction genre of having enough science in a book, 
but being very readable, you know, kind of taking you on a journey, getting you to think about stuff as you go through. So I, I'm a big fan of, of those kinds of books. And I try to get away from that. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't do a lot of like business books and those kinds of things. I know there's a lot out there. I certainly read a lot of blogs and those kinds of things. But when I'm reading, reading, I kind of want to escape. So I'll, I'll go for that type of a novel. Do you have a biggest RevOps misconception? That we are here to say no to everyone for everything they ask for. We're not. I'm not. My team's not. I think most people are not. I think sometimes as RevOps or go-to-market ops people, we can maybe reframe the question and how we try to think about it. I don't want to say no. I want to help people. Sometimes with the solution or the way that my teams want to go about getting to the end state, no, we're not going to do it that way. But I don't want to say no to your ask or no to helping you execute to what that is. I don't. We want, we want to help. We're helpers by nature. We're, it's in our DNA. I know it's in our DNA. I hate saying no. Do you have a top three dinner party guests? They have to be alive. So I'm going to age myself. I would, I, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat. I want to go back in time. Okay. Um, I want Van Halen during the 1984 tour. And that's four of them, not three, but let's assume that one of them is going to be passed out drunk, like shortly into the dinner. <laughs> so I'm going to count that as my three. That's my, I want to have, I want, that's the dinner I want. I think I'm, I'll allow it. That's a great, great Thank answer. You. Best advice for a first-time head of RevOps? Ask questions, right? Be overly curious. Probably probably why you're in that job role is you're curious by nature. Make decisions and move on. Don't, don't be paralyzed by data, right? Get to a decision, execute it. I think we talked about this before. Scent of urgency over perfection. Get to good. Don't, don't do crap, right? But get to good. Get to good enough. Call it. Move on. And lastly, I'd say build your relationships across the whole go-to-market spectrum. And like I said, including your, your legal team, your finance team, right? Even the people that are on the periphery of what you do, think about it as an end-to-end -end ecosystem and how do you bring value to making things work through that ecosystem. Sean, awesome having you on the show. Super excited to follow along. Any, uh, any final thoughts here? Anything uh, to plug? No, I, thanks for the opportunity. I love talking about this topic. You know, I think a lot of people have fallen into this role kind of organically. Such a thing didn't exist. I don't know, five, I mean, the starting day maybe, but didn't exist that long ago. And so I'm always happy to talk to other people in the industry, people that are, you know, moving their careers in this direction, networking with fellow peers. So don't be a stranger. You can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you for listening to Rise of RevOps. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you're listening. This podcast was created by the team at Qualified. The Pipeline Cloud is the modern way B2B revenue teams generate pipeline. Learn more at qualified.com.